I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connections, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. Another really great episode. My guest for today is Dr. Colleen Reichman. And she is the author, or shall I say, she is the co-author of The Inside Scoop on Eating Disorder Recovery, advice from two therapists who have been there. And this is a great book for anyone who's struggling, for supports, for family members. And we're going to talk a little bit about it on this interview. All right, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am really thrilled to introduce our guest for today, Dr. Colleen Reichman. Colleen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so thrilled to have you. I'm thrilled for you to talk about your practice, what you're doing, also your newest book, which is The Inside Scoop on Eating Disorder Recovery, Advice from Two Therapists Who Have Been There. You co-authored it with Jennifer Rollin, who has also been on the show, so I'm thrilled to have you. Colleen, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself beyond the book and things like that? Sure. So I am a licensed clinical psychologist and I specialize in the treatment of eating disorders and body image. Um, And I have a group practice in Philadelphia. It's just called Therapy for Eating Disorders and Body Image. It's pretty straightforward. Um, What else? I have a passion for the work that I do that was kind of spurred on from my own recovery from an eating disorder. And I am the co-author of that book that you mentioned, The Inside Scoop on Eating Disorder Recovery, which is the most exciting thing to happen all year. Um, Very, very excited about that. It came out about two months ago at this point. And then beyond that, I'm a a dog enthusiast. I'm also kind of just a Philadelphia enthusiast. And I have a one-year-old son named Ezra. Oh, first of all, I love the name Ezra. What what a great age, too. Oh, my goodness. So where I'd like to begin, um, because the book is so wonderful for people that are that are struggling. I love the fact that you talk about the fact that if you're even thinking about if do I have an eating disorder, that there's something to be explored, you know, like what what? 
brought about the topic, how did you and Jennifer come together and say, as two recovered therapists, let's write a book about this? Yeah, it was kind of a convoluted journey. About, I would say, five years, maybe six years ago, actually, at this point, I set out to write a book um, more broadly about just diet culture and ditching diet culture. And then um, as I went on with trying to create that and talk to different publishers and also book agents, the whole messy process of getting your foot in the door of any type of (laughs) publishing company, uh, I just got feedback about how, you know, the market is oversaturated with those books anyway, first of all, or that's the feedback that I was getting. And there's not enough books about eating disorder recovery. Like this type of book and this type type of niche could be very special. Um, and one, one agent even said like, that's in the book that you're writing or the proposal, that seems to be what you're actually enthused about anyway. Like those are the parts that kind of jump out the most. So why not why not um, tailor it to that? So I ended up changing the entire book and the book proposal and then to make it very specific for eating disorder recovery and then joined forces with Jen along the way um, because she just, she's like, I want to be involved. This sounds like a, this is a project that I need to be involved in. Um, And as soon as she came on board when we put our heads together, the chapters just like flowed. Like we just had, we were kind of bobbing back and forth and had all different ideas. So it just took off from there. Well, I love how the reader feels like they're involved. Like you and Jen are talking to the reader. Like you you make little side comments throughout the book as if you're talking to us. And I, I think that's one of the things that's really attractive, especially when somebody feels so alone in an eating disorder to feel like they are they are going along you're going along with them during this journey as they're reading this book is really really wonderful how would you describe the book if i said give me give us an elevator pitch tell us tell us about the book what would you say oh geez i used to have this so rehearsed and down ah. pat and of course it's left my brain but i guess i would say it's um, sort of a how-to manual in terms of eating disorder recovery that's written in a pretty accessible way. Our hope was that readers would feel like it was kind of two friends talking to you versus something that was, you know, overly academic or um, just too research-oriented and dry. So it's kind of a step-by-step guide with all sorts of prompts and um, exercises threaded throughout So you take the reader through eating disorder recovery, but also give tangible steps towards that recovery process. And it's kind of breezy. Um, It's not, it can't be light, obviously, because it's the topic is so important. And um, so I wouldn't describe it as light, but I would say we tried to bring some humor into, into the text and just tried to make it different, I guess, than all the other books that we've read on the topic. I've often said that there is nothing funny about an eating disorder. There was nothing funny about my life when I had an eating disorder, and there's nothing funny about what my clients are going through. And sometimes it's really important to bring humor in. It's it's such a 
difficult, complicated, complex situation, there has to be a little bit of levity. And, and, and I think every once in a while, the clients really appreciate it. Like, just like, oh, I feel like not only can I laugh, but I can breathe a little bit. And, and that's sort of the sense I got from the book. Right. And that's exactly what we wanted. And we also had talked about, because like you said, we, you know, also didn't feel like there was anything funny about eating disorders or having an eating disorder. But one thing I personally noticed through recovery was I did I actually lost my sense of humor, I would say, fully in the eating disorder. And I noticed I got it back slowly. Like I remember distinct moments where I was like, oh my gosh, I I just laughed really hard or I made like a silly video and sent it to someone. I haven't done that in like a year. Um, so it was, we felt like because that was an important part of what we got back through recovery, it would be helpful to have it in the book at times. And it's also our Instagram accounts, we kind of try to keep some humor sometimes. Again, it's difficult because it's not a funny topic, but humor is healing in certain ways and a special part of what you get back through recovery in my experience. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because I don't think I thought about it, but I'm a really funny person. (laughs) I think I'm really funny. I laugh at myself all the time. I was not funny at all. I wasn't even fun when I was in my Mm -hmm. eating disorder. There there, There was no joy. And the irony is, is I kept thinking if I was, if I went a little farther in my eating disorder, then I'd find joy. Then I'd find levity. Then I'd find humor. And it just got darker and darker and darker and farther away from all of that joy, humor, things like that. Mm-hmm. I heard you on a podcast, and please correct me if I'm paraphrasing. You were talking about, you know, this whole new trend of like healthy eating, the wellness, all, you know, all these the, these new ways that marketers are trying to basically say, here's another diet, but we're going to, we're going to, coin it in a different way. And you had mentioned something that you, part of what went into your eating disorder was that you were, and again, I'm probably paraphrasing, trying to do like quote unquote healthy eating or clean eating. And then it turned into orthorexia, which is really, really powerful. And I'm wondering if you could speak to First of all, what message do you want to give people about diet culture, about the wellness industry, all these things that we're just bombarded with? I would say an important place to start with the message is that if you find yourself really wrapped up in this right now and um, even feeling defensive when other people talk about the wellness diet and wellness culture, that's so understandable and it's so easy to be consumed by it. And I think it can almost be compared to like religion in certain ways. Like there's a religious clinging to these like rules and these, um, and just healthism in general. So I think that's first and foremost, just have compassion for yourself if you're there. And there's also ways to move away from that. And there's a life that's so much bigger than living within the wellness culture kind of, I always kind of view it as black and white, like kind of living life on the periphery or within 
uh, just this black and white world of rules and structure and sterileness versus the chaotic, sometimes admittedly chaotic, real world that's full of color and all these opportunities. And there is the main message is there's a way to make your way to that other world if you're um, interested. Yeah. Do you remember what the process was like for you? Could you share with some of the with the listeners some of the 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 skills, the the awareness, like things that went into your recovery. I also want to point out insight and awareness alone is not enough. That's the beginning. If you do not put them into action, you are just sitting in a lot of insight and awareness, but you're not going anywhere. So were there parts or was there anyone in your life that that had you sort of take a step back and say, wow, what am I doing? What's happening? See, the orthorexia phase was, I think, the most complicated perhaps because my the eating disorder was kind of a shapeshifter. It started as anorexia and then I went through several <laughs> recovery journeys and then back to anorexia. Um, and it was very obvious to even to me and others around me that what I was doing was not, you know, healthy. Like the things that I was doing were blatantly unhealthy and I was blatantly pursuing emaciation. And it's just, it was, it was just more clear. And so when I went through, I don't know, my fourth recovery, because I think I just went back and forth a lot throughout college. Once I got to graduate school, I was feeling like I was in a better place. Um, And that's when the wellness culture thing happened. And it was just more confusing because it did, people were like, I don't know, she's, she did this stuff before, but now, you know, it's not about weight, it's about health. And I kind of want to eat like that too. Like it looks enticing. It's important to think about your health and want, you know, she wants to live a long time. So admittedly, I was a difficult client, family member and friend to, to reach. So the people who did, I would say it was like little glimmers along the way, um, like interventions or therapists that stepped away from like the skill-based work and moved more towards values-based work or um, just building the relationship with me. Um, that was really important, I think. I do think skills are super important and action, you need the insight and the action, like you were saying. But by that point, I had so many skills and I just felt like I was being hit over the head with them. So when I had a therapist that really moved towards relational work and trying to bond with me, even though I was like stone cold in session for a while, um, that that was kind of a change factor for me. And then also, I just think being in graduate school and realizing like I had a taste of life that was a little bit better when it, when I was in recovery. And I just, I had kind of a purpose to move forward and chase the dream of, of being a researcher. Yeah. I so appreciate though, you're sharing two things, which is one, you moved in and out of recovery a number of times. And I think it's really important that people remember this is not a linear process in spite of or regardless of whatever eating disorder you're struggling with, this is very rarely one and done. And so the fact that, and we don't talk about it that often, that you you go into recovery, you pull out, you go into recovery, you pull out. 
And I also appreciate you saying you were a difficult client because I think that it it's it just first of all for me when I have clients that are really challenging and difficult my way of looking at it is like, wow, they're holding on even harder to this eating disorder. Like it is not that they're difficult human beings. It's Mm -hmm. that the eating disorder, they are terrified to let go, give you an inch, show you any emotion. And if you go underneath that, there's usually reasons. And that's where, so if we just keep sort of getting stuck with our clients where they're just, you know, they're tough, they're challenging, and we never go underneath, we're kind of just enabling the same cycle to happen. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. or. Yeah, I definitely agree with everything you said. And I think the the being a difficult client in the past um, uh, definitely affords me an empathy chip for maybe people who are similar that I'm sitting with. Um, I do feel like I have a, a ton of patience and empathy because I just can remember I was quote unquote difficult because there was like an element of I didn't being bonding with a therapist or like sharing a smile together. That's vulnerable. And I had, a, you know, a lot of thoughts about being unlovable and not wanting to get, you know, hurt by it. So it just, it felt like that was, you know, it was too vulnerable. And so there were a lot of like reasons underneath the behaviors and like the insults that, I, cause I was very like mean, honestly, in session. Um, but it was stemming from like this really root cause. So I try to remember that when I'm sitting with someone who might, you know, be acting in a similar way. And it's, it's, it really is helpful that when I was working at the inpatient, I worked on two inpatient eating disorder treatment units. And I think I like really thrived with people who were labeled as chronic or yeah, difficult. Um, I honestly like loved that work so much. And I, I still do. Do you know, and this is a, this is a big question, but you know, I'm I'm imagining that people are like, oh my gosh, I've gone in and out of the recovery process so many times. I'm imagining people are thinking, what was it, Colleen, that finally clicked? By the way, you and I both know there's never one thing. It's years, it's experience, it's the hearing the right thing at the right time. Do you know, and, and you, you spoke a little bit to it, the graduate school gave you something to focus on, but what are your thoughts about, about what what happened, how it clicked at that time? I always wish I had a really like great answer for that question. Cause I want it, I kind of want it to be like clean and I give it to people and it's very wrapped up. Like, well, there was this moment <laughs> and it just all clicked, but I, I don't, I have like a series of little moments and little things that, um, that came together that, that I'll say that final time in recovery when I, reached what I, I call it full recovery. I know people like to also call it strong recovery. So whatever you prefer to call it, um, it was a series of little things like, yeah, graduate school, also clicking with the right therapist, I think was very helpful. Um, having a partner who was supportive and helpful. Um, not that that like is by any means a saving grace. I, that was just like a tiny piece of what was helpful. Um, and being tired, I think, of just the whole eating disorder process and like 
the constant like drama of it all. Like it felt like a big, it was just this very dramatic theme in my life where I was constantly in crisis. And that's how I was viewed like the troubled quote unquote, the troubled person. And I just, I did get like, again, none of these things by themselves are in my opinion, will ever be the the full catalyst to recovery, but sometimes getting fed up and saying, I do, okay, I, you know, perhaps I'm ready to really try and put all of myself into this. That was a change factor for me. Yeah. And it's similar to, there's not one thing that went into the eating disorder. So there's not one thing that's going to create recovery. Um, but I do think, I think one of the reasons why it's important for people to understand that there's never one thing is because, and I've said this before, life starts filling in and happening as you let go of parts of the eating disorder. So it's not a switch. It's not overnight you're recovered. It's a gradual process where there were times where I wouldn't engage in an eating disorder behavior for like two days or thoughts and be like, you got to be kidding me. I I haven't had an eating disorder thought in two days. That was powerful for me. Like realizing that I was focusing and finally, finally having something else to look towards as opposed to laxatives, you know, diet, food, exercise, like that's, that's all I did all day long. And it's repetitive and it's a loop. It's comfortable. But once you start finding something else, you're like, oh my gosh. You also realize how much time you're spending on the eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. I always say, be careful of a recovered person because you have no idea what they're capable of. Like, you know, it's just, it's unbelievable. Yeah. How I I do know that I heard you also talk about that uh, feminist theory was is something that you're very passionate about and speak. Can you speak a little bit to it and how it applies with eating disorders and things like that? Sure. Yeah, I, I like to um, integrate feminist. It's called feminist relational um, that orientation into my therapeutic work because I did find it helpful when I guess, and I'm probably not going to do it justice explaining it right now, but um, when I had therapists that didn't make me feel quote unquote crazy for experiencing this distress in my body and wanting to be a very low body weight, like when I had therapists that worked to help me understand I'm not talking like basic environment, environmental things that like our, you know, diet culture and everything. I think that we, a lot of us know that at this point, that diet culture plays a role, but kind of going deeper than that and um, like gender roles and heteronormativity and the patriarchy and just, and also intergenerational trauma, you know, in in the family and themes that have been passed down and um, that was pretty transformative because I felt like, okay, you're not just telling me to eat and giving me a scale and saying like body image is the last thing to go. So um, you'll get there. Like it just felt like it made more sense to me and it was very validating because I felt, uh, you know, like I just, there was this missing piece to all of it. Like, well, I'm doing this stuff and you're giving me the skills. And then I walk out into the world and it still very much feels this way 
this is really helpful to me. Like, why is it so helpful? And so I think feminist relational theory addresses just that. Like why eating disorders are so helpful and just different themes within our society that might contribute to people of all genders turning towards something like um, manipulating food and weight to deal with the distress that our society creates. I also think it's important to really honor and validate where somebody is at in the process. And I agree by saying to somebody like, oh, well, body image is the the last to go. So you just have to tolerate through it. That doesn't help anybody. In fact, that sort of silences the client because I want to know how it's impacting them, what meaning they're making of it. How are they viewing themselves in the world as a result? Because if you just brush it off, mm-hmm. you're missing a, a an enormous part of the recovery process. Right. You're, you're smiling at that. I don't know if you have something to add or if it's just it's something that resonated with you. It does. It makes me think about the first treatment center I worked at. Um, when I started, there was no body image group. There was CBT DBT art therapy. And I remember saying like, are, is there a body image group for people? Cause that comes up a lot. <laughs> and they, somebody said, well, we've had it, but people have, you know, literally run out of the room screaming in distress. Like it's just not doable. And I was kind of like, can I try at least, can I try to have one and see if I can keep people in the room because they're all sitting in their bodies and we're sitting in ours. And it just seems like it would be something to at least gent- gently at first address or or give people the space to if they if they're you know wanting to and i got I got a body image group started on on that unit and people did not you know run away it was really well attended and we had a lot of hard conversations and i think it was i just view it as really important and i have feelings about it being brushed off as like work on that, you know, down the road or, or it'll kind of just resolve itself down the road. Like you'll, I just, I think it should be addressed all along because we're sitting in our bodies all along, you know? I also think if it's a group, if it's a topic that has clients running out of the room in distress, even more reason why it's necessary. Because if people don't even feel safe enough talking about it in a safe environment amongst peers with therapists, if that's unsafe, then what are they thinking about themselves as they're walking through the world Mm -hmm. and their bodies? So it's always, I always find it interesting when people say, oh yeah, we got, you know, we get a, it's really hard, like working with families that don't want to be involved. I'm like, even more reason why we need to bring them in. Like this is, it's really hard to work with body image. Even more reason why we need to talk about it. Because if we struggle with it as recovered clinicians, and I don't mean struggling with it personally in our bodies, but being able to tolerate their discomfort in it, I can't imagine their able to tolerate it. You know, it's, it's Mm -hmm. just, so I always say the more complicated something is the more reason why it needs to be brought into the room. Yeah. That's kind of what makes therapy, I think, different than sitting down with maybe a friend. Like we are supposed to be inviting the hard stuff into the room and we 
don't run from it. We sit with it together. And I just think that's what keeps the space magical. I, yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah. I Have you noticed anything, I don't, I don't know why I said anything, because that's not the right way of putting it, but, and I'm, I'm making a bit of a turn, but have you noticed differences in people's struggles or recovery process throughout the pandemic? How has that been impacting your clients? You know, it's interesting because it seems like there are people who found the pandemic almost helpful in the recovery process. I I would say helpful for the time being because um, they were able to eat at home. Um, There was more structure, I guess, that people were able to create in their schedule. And there wasn't, you know, the excuse of, well, I'm at work, so I can't do lunch. Um, So I, I, and, you know, some people who had supportive family members or um, were able to lean on them more. So I did, I have seen people who honestly thrived, which I didn't, I didn't know would happen. I think the more common um, thing that I saw was it really, it's just hard (laughs) on people in terms of recovery. And I think a lot of that has to do with loneliness. Like it's been so lonely for so many. And I think eating disorders are very helpful which is something to really, we should, that should be talked about. Like eating disorders are really helpful in the short term for loneliness because they distract you and it sometimes feels like a companion. And um, I also think the uncertainty of the pandemic creates, pe- you know, this desire to thrive, to kind of cling to something that feels more certain like disordered eating. So it just seemed to me that, while there were people that did really well, there are also people who the eating disorder just kind of has gotten louder and louder throughout the time, and which is so understandable. I also think the amount of time spent on social media increased mm-hmm. eating disorder behaviors, thoughts, diet culture, you know, body image distress. Have you noticed any of that with your clients that their their social media like I I have said to clients I am asking you to go off of social media. Like I'm asking you to do it like let's let's start for like a week and just see how you feel. And mm-hmm. I guarantee you I get it. You're going to be stressed like what's up but you're going to feel better. Like what how has social media impacted any of your clients or how do you navigate with that? It's definitely that I have noticed there's way more conversations about social media since the pandemic, just because I think there's so much people have time on their hands. And social media is also like a numbing agent. Like I think it was Glennon Doyle who called it an easy button method to kind of, instead of like sitting with a feeling or being bored or lonely, you can just start scrolling. And so it keeps you from ever really addressing those feelings and figuring out actual long-term ways to, to handle them. But also it's just, there's so much toxicity on social media and there's, you know, I am learning more about TikTok and I can't believe some of the trends that are on there that teenagers are exposed to. I think there's just a lot of body focus. It's very easy to get drawn into comparisons and what I eat in a day videos. And even in the recovery community, you know, this person 
has this wonderful recovery account, but you know, they're exercising again. You know, I'm comparing myself to that person in that way. It's just, it really lends itself to comparison. And I also think we go on social media, like I said, when we're bored and lonely, and those are two really vulnerable states for comparison, I think. So it's like you're primed to feel this way, but yet you're pulled to do it. And um, I have definitely asked people to take social media hiatuses and I've taken them too, because I just, I find it overwhelming at times myself. It's it's true. And, and for some reason, I don't know, I'm surprised you're the first person who has said this, which is people do go on social media when they're bored and lonely, which is a very, very vulnerable time. Very yeah. vulnerable. It's it's when we're we're looking for connection, we're looking for similarities, we're looking for advice or whatnot, and th- and this is this is when you're scrolling through and you're seeing diets and body types and exercise regimes, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I never thought about. I did. I mean, it's it's so true. Bored and lonely. Yeah, very rarely do you see somebody like at a party at a social event, you know, talking with their friends and like going through social media because you're engaged with people. So, right. There's actually this really fascinating research that I think also ties in with that that we we do go on social media when we're lonely and craving connection. And, um, but it doesn't actually give like they've studied dopamine spikes in the brain when you talk to someone on the phone. And it's sort of similar to when you see someone and you're talking with them in person, like you do get that spike. But when you're texting someone or conversing via social media or leaving comments, they've, there's been no spike in any feel good connection hormones or chemicals. It's just almost like flat, like nothing's happening at all. So I think we're craving connection and real meaningful friendships can come out of social media, but it doesn't give you that in the, in the moment like you really probably want it to. Yeah. Well, it it is like all I can, when you were saying like, you know, there's no spikes in the brain activity is it it's truly numbing out. It's mm-hmm. just numbing out. You're on automatic. You're, you know, and so that's, that's sort of what happens. What, ha- what was it like when you were writing the book? book and reflecting back on some of your experiences with your eating disorder. Did you find that at all triggering? You know, every once in a while, you and and Jennifer, I'm going to use the term pepper in stories of your own experience, which are which are great and really, really wonderful for people to hear. Did that trigger you at all? Was that how, how did you feel about that? You know, I wouldn't call it triggering. I I think writing, there's an initial passage where we tell our stories, you know, just a few pages, but we each sort of explain our journeys at the beginning. And I did notice when I was writing that, like, I just felt like bummed out afterwards. I'm like tired, even though it ends, you know, you know in a hopeful way. I just, I was like, that was a lot to go through and just reflect on and there was, that was a lot. Um, I don't think I felt triggered because I think of triggers activated and it was just more like it brought up feelings. Um, and so that part, I really noticed that, which is why, I mean, I think writing a memoir would be incredibly difficult because of that. 
but then sprinkling in the little pieces throughout of like how the topic of the chapter applies to my journey. I didn't find that so much that I didn't think that elicited much of that negative emotion because it was more like interesting almost like, yeah, I did. I actually, I do have this memory and that's so how interesting that that comes up so vividly for me when we're talking about this topic. It was just kind of enlightening, but the writing of the entire story, even though it was just a few pages, that was more difficult, I would say. It's it's interesting because I've been doing the podcast now for a while and, and I find myself talking often about my eating disorder. For me, and this is, by the way, just where I'm at. Everyone's obviously always in a different place. It's so empowering. I I have never felt so connected to myself and in my body and in my heart and mind and all of that as I have over the last year, really reflecting about how disconnected I was with Mm -hmm. my body, my mind, my heart, my soul in the eating disorder. And Colleen, sometimes I feel like it was yesterday and it was 30 years ago. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I feel like it was yesterday and sometimes it feels like a lifetime ago. It's really, really interesting. I was just agreeing with you like wholeheartedly that, especially that experience of when you're talking about it, sometimes it does feel like it was, you know, 30 years ago. And sometimes it's something comes back, like really, it just feels like it was just yesterday. And it's just, yeah, it's pretty dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. What do you hope that people will get out of the book? Because again, the book is just filled with so many good nuggets. I, I don't know why I use that word, but there's there's just so much wisdom. So what are you hoping that people take from the book? I think I hope first and foremost that it brings people hope because um, I was like the, the queen of saying that, you know, full recovery, I guess it's possible, just not for me or recovery. You know, people, I think they might be lying when they're talking about this. So I totally understand that. And I don't know if there's a way someone could have um, like reached me when I was experiencing those thoughts and feelings then when I was in an eating disorder. But Jen and I were kind of thinking like maybe this book could be something that for those people who are having those thoughts of it's just not possible for me or um, that it might give a shred of hope. And then also just tools and things to kind of focus on that are not um, the eating disorder, like journaling prompts. And I just hope it gives people access to tools that they haven't had before. And then a feeling of hopefully being understood and connected and and seen. Yeah. There was something I was just going to say, give me a second, Colleen, it'll come back to me. It always does. Um, You were saying, oh, I remember. Um, I I feel like everyone, or I don't want to say everyone, but most people that are going through the process feel other people can do the recovery process. I can't. Mm-hmm. Other people can, you know, get to the other side. I can't. And I think that that's a very common fear and a really common misconception, but it can keep people stuck. 
it's one of the reasons why I do this podcast so we can hear recovered stories, recovered voices, have people on that wrote books about being recovered. And the truth about being recovered is that life is still complicated, but it's a lot easier navigating through the complications. I think that in my eating disorder, it was more that I didn't think I'd have the the emotional maturity to navigate through complex things in life. So I just stayed, I kept myself developmentally stunted. It, you know, you know, I think that was what one of the functions of my eating disorder was. And the reality is, is there's nothing that anyone cannot work through. But looking away from it and just using an eating disorder behavior keeps these negative situations just perpetuating. They just keep happening and happening and happening. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I, I'm imagining people have reached out to you about the book and said that they just feel really seen and heard. Yeah, there have been a lot of people and I love those messages make my like year. <laughs> I just love getting them because that's what we wrote it for. Um, that's, and these are the people who we wrote it for and we tried to make that like pretty clear. Like, this is for you. If you're in this place, you know, we've been there and we just really want you to feel seen and have hope. So those messages are like, oh my God, I can't even put into words how much they make my day and year. Yeah. I I know. I know. Because as therapists, that's what we want to do. We want to help make a difference. And so for someone to say your words made a difference is is a really, really powerful feeling because that's, you know, and as recovered professionals, we know how dark it can be. So mm-hmm. to hear someone say you've you've lifted me even for a minute out of the darkness is a really, really powerful feeling. So, yeah. oh yeah, I so agree. Yeah. Colleen, I, I hate to say this, but we're actually getting close to the end. And I'm wondering if there's something that I didn't ask you that you'd like to, what else would you like to share before? And don't forget before we go to your final question. Oh yes. That final yes. question. Yep. Um, I'm trying to think. I just want people to go, I guess, going back to our theme of having hope, I would want to share that, that I want people to feel that. And, um, and it's not about saying, if I can do it, you can do it because that's a really flawed concept. I believe just doesn't take into account a lot of issues of marginalization and oppression and access to care. And it's a whole nother podcast topic, obviously. Um, I was going to say, do you have another hour? Yeah. Which would be so important to talk about. So that's not, you know, what I'm trying to say here, but it's more about like just using a past struggle to shine a flashlight for people in the dark is kind of my hope. Um, And so if you do read the book or if you're looking for a book that does that, um, that is, that is my hope. And that is my main, the reason I, I do all this. Yeah. Fantastic. Colleen, it has been a pleasure. As you know, though, I do have one final question and it has nothing to do with eating disorders. So (laughs) the question is, if someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? So I 
when I read that question, I took it, I was wondering which direction to go because when I think about writing on a bathroom stall, I feel like it's usually like trash talk or like you're kind of insulting the person. And I was like, do I want to talk about how people would insult me? Or, but then I thought maybe someone like, I've also seen inspirational things like almost gravestone type writings on the wall. So I was like taking that direction, the legacy type writing. Um, and I would hope that somebody would write about how I chose to live life in color because it's just, that is something that I say a lot and feels really, really meaningful for me. Just moving away from black and white coldness into chaotic, like real world color. And so if nothing else, I would just hope to be remembered for, you know, you know, bravely doing that and making that choice. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful quote. Colleen, again, thank you so much for being on the show. I really, truly appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. You are welcome. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.